This is episode 44 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this podcast, I talk about Le Grand David and his own spectacular magic company. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for all things magic history. My name is Dean Carnegie, I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 44. Today I am taking a stroll down memory lane. It's my own memory lane at that. And I call this episode the first time I met Le Grand David. These are the first words from a very lengthy monologue that was delivered by Webster Bull during the second half of the Le Grand David Magic Show at the Cabot Street Cinema Theater in Beverly, Massachusetts. For some reason, these words have been stuck in my head now for several days. I hear them over and over in my mind, and it, it makes me go back to the time I first met Le Grand David. It was many years ago now. In fact, it was in the early days of their show. I was just a kid, and I had found out about the show through Genie Magazine. There was a big two-page ad about the show that caught my eye. And as it turned out, my family was going to take a trip to New England to visit some friends. And I mentioned to my dad about this magic show thing. And he suggested we all attend. So we ended up bringing a group of nine people with us to this little town called Beverly, Massachusetts. Back then, there wasn't a whole lot to the town. It had seen better days. The uh, theater seemed to be the only life in the area. And no one in our group really knew what to expect, even even me, to be honest. And once we got to the Cabot, when we walked through the theater doors, it was as if the show had already begun. There was like this big dragon head that you had to walk through that was just the coolest. And then there were costume characters in the lobby greeting people. Further down in the lobby, there was a, a puppet stage set up. Uh, there was a, just this feeling of excitement even before the show began. And for me, I just soaked it all in. And when the show did begin, I was overwhelmed with the spectacle. There were elaborate costumes, beautifully painted props, and what seemed like tons of people on stage. Also, there were curtains and gorgeous backdrops. There was just not like any magic show I'd ever seen, though, and to be honest, I really hadn't seen that many magic shows live at that point in my life. I hadn't even seen Doug Henning perform live yet. That would still be a year or so away. The show was called... Le Grand David and his own spectacular magic company. I assumed the show was this guy, Le Grand David. I kind of missed the part in the posters that said, Marco the Magi's production of. Uh, so when I began watching the show, I immediately recognized Le Grand David, but the person who really stood out was this, this Marco the Magi. I remember when we were driving back to the house after the show, most of the talk was about this guy, Marco. Why? Well, his character was was a wild man on stage. He was funny. He was extremely energetic. I remember his very theatrical linking ring routine. I remember that he performed what would eventually become one of their signature pieces, the floating table. I remember the floating table, how he made it like 
I don't know, stick to his fingers, it floated against his fingers, and he walked out into the audience with this. And if I'm not mistaken, Seth, who was the youngest member of the cast, also did the floating table along with him. So Seth had a table uh, that floated on his fingers as well. It was just so cool. I don't remember every bit about the show back then. I remember a lot. I remember being blown away by David's skill with the billiard balls. This was a trick that I, I was just starting to learn myself at the time, and I was dumbfounded at how well he handled the mystery. I think more than anything, it was the smaller stage magic that really fooled me at that time. The stage illusions were great, don't get me wrong, but I, I was fairly knowledgeable about how the inner workings of these things uh, happened. I, you know what? In truth, I probably didn't know as much as I thought I did. Uh, naturally, today, having performed many of those same illusions, I know how they work. But back then, I, I probably didn't really know. I can tell you this. When the show was over, my head was buzzing. Oh, oh, wait. Um, I got to mention this. This is a very important. There was an intermission. So... During the intermission, I got up and I was standing in the back of the theater. You know, people were getting up and getting refreshments and stretching their legs, using the restroom, whatever. I get up, I'm standing in the back of the theater by myself. I happen to look over and I see someone that I recognize, but I had never met them. And the person was Irene Larson. And I instantly wondered, well, if Irene is here, is Bill Larson here as well? They were married after all. And sure enough, he was. So I got to meet Bill and Irene Larson for the very first time right there at the Cabot Street Cinema Theater. I'd been writing letters to Bill for a while because he was the editor of Genie Magazine. And frankly, I didn't, myself, I didn't know many magicians. So I would often contact people via snail mail. I even had a copy of Genie Magazine with me at the time. And you know what? It didn't occur to me to have them sign it. I had Legrand David sign it, but I didn't even think to have the editor of the magazine sign it. That's the brain of a child for you. Around my birthday in August of that year, the new genie came out, and lo and behold, who was on the cover? But Legrand David. It actually took Bill two issues to fully cover his experience at the show. In fact, he wrote the following. Seeing Marco the Magi's production of Le Grand David in his own spectacular magic company was the most exciting magical evening I have had since I first saw the Dante show. And Dante, by the way, was his favorite magician of all time. I never forgot that first visit to Beverly. Years later, I sent a letter to Cesario telling him about my first visit there. And he replied in a most unusual way. He invited me and a guest up for the weekend to enjoy the show all over again. And enjoy it, I did. In truth, the second visit to La Grande Vide changed my life. I've never been the same since. It was an extremely positive experience. And, of course, becoming friends with the members of the company was a huge bonus. I certainly uh, am not as close to them as uh, some people in the magic world, but I have always felt a bond thanks to Cesario and David and Rick and Avram and Anne and other members of the Legrand David family. Oh, incidentally, that magic show also changed the life of that town. When I returned to Beverly years later, the downtown area was thriving. 
It had shops and stores and many restaurants. The show and the theater breathed new life back into that area, and the magic show is what breathed life into many of us in the magic world. Now, maybe you're wondering, how is this incredible show? How did it even come about? Well, it would take more than a single podcast episode to cover it all, but I'm going to do my best to give you a condensed version. It begins with Cesario Pelaez. He was born October 16, 1932, in Santa Clara, Cuba. As a boy, his father took him to see many of the traveling theatrical shows that would visit the island. Among the magicians that visited were David Bamberg, known as Fu Manchu, Ricciardi Sr. and Ricciardi Jr., Chang, and others. These grand productions had a profound effect on Cesario, and they were later become the inspiration for his ultimate theatrical dream, a resident magic company. In the 1960s, after having studied education in psychology in Cuba, Cesario fled his homeland as Fidel Castro's grip took hold. He escaped, disguised as a priest, and wound up in Colombia first before coming to the United States. When he did make it to the States, he would eventually become a professor of psychology at Salem State College, and also he studied with Abraham Maslow. Cesario always had this dream to have his own resident magic company. As a child, he got the neighborhood kids together to do shows, but his true ambition was much grander. He wanted to create a show like those he had seen in his youth, the magic shows that were full of spectacle and fantasy and wonderful theatrics. As a college professor, he would make suggestions to certain students and friends, things like, you should learn about music, you should learn about sewing, or whatever it might be. He also encouraged people to read particular books. He was quietly building his troupe, though none of them knew it at the time. And I imagine when he finally brought them all together to share his concept that they probably likely thought he was crazy. But he wasn't crazy. Ambitious, yes. Crazy, no. He had found an old rundown theater in Beverly and was able to work out a deal on the price what happened was each member of the company bought into the property so that they basically began with no mortgage. It was paid for. It was an old vaudeville house, but now it was showing movies. They spent a couple nights doing a floor-to-ceiling cleaning of the place and then reopened, showing movies again. But behind the scenes, Cesario was building the show in his mind. He chose the illusions, and then the members of the company would build them. He designed the costumes, and the members of the company would sew them. And let me tell you this. They had thousands of costumes. By the end of their run, so many, so many in fact, they had to purchase a house next to the theater to house all the costumes not in use. In that place, I went there. It was packed. I had never seen anything like it. On February 20th, 1977, the first performance of Le Grand David and his own spectacular magic company hit the stage. That was 43 years ago today. A two-hour show of stage magic presented in a manner that hadn't been seen since the early part of the 20th century. Lavish costumes, intricately decorated props, beautiful scenery, and a cast of 30 people would become a hallmark of their unique brand of magic. The costumes, scenery, and most of the props were built, sewn, and created by the members of their company 
under Cesario's direction. Cesario's role in the adventure was as leader and director. He chose the character name Marco the Magi, but allowed his young apprentice, David Bull, to get the larger billing. The show grew in size and in scope. At one time, they had as many as 60 members in their company. The magic world began to take notice of what was going on in this small town and began writing articles about Cesario and the company. Even Time magazine wrote a two-page article about them. By 1984, the Cabot Street Cinema Theater was in full bloom, showing movies Monday through Saturday and presenting the Le Grand David magic shows on Sunday. Now it was time for Cesario to approach the members of his company with another idea, purchasing a second theater. The Larkham Theater was a few blocks away and was originally built by the same people that built the Cabot. Well, they bought that one too. This time, professionals largely did the restoration of this theater, though the decorative work uh, was all done in-house. On June 4th, 1985, the Grand David in concert opened at the Larkham. The show had a charm and elegance all its own and an achievement that made this group seem unstoppable. Now let me step back into the picture. As I mentioned, I was invited by Cesario to be a guest for the weekend. This was in the year 2000. I brought my girlfriend with me. She knew nothing of the show or the people. As we went up, I showed her an, uh, an old issue of Magic Magazine that was done on the show, and I tried to give her some idea what to expect, but I'll be honest, before I left, I had mentioned to my good friend Ralph uh, that I had a strange feeling that I, I wasn't going to be coming away the same person as I was when I went up there. When we arrived in Beverly, via train by the way, we were met at the train station by two members of the company, Rick Heath and Mark Trombley. We were staying at the home of a member of the company, Avram and Anne Surath, which was exceptionally nice of them, by the way. They shuttled us all around for the weekend, so gracious and very kind. The first morning of our visit, a Saturday, we went to the theater, and they were having a juggling class on stage and a barbershop quartet rehearsal. They also had a dance class going on, and they grabbed my girlfriend to participate in the, the dance class while we took part in the juggling class. By the way... I still had not seen Cesario. Uh, I did not see him the night before, nor this morning. However, sometime around midday, he did come in. I saw him walk into the theater right down to the front of the stage to shake my hand. He didn't speak a word. He just waved, and almost like magic, he was gone. Apparently, he had an emergency dental appointment, which was the reason why he didn't stay around and why we hadn't seen him, so that's why he left so abruptly. After the classes, we walked from the Cabot Cinema Theater to the Larkham, there was going to be a show at the Larkham that afternoon, and I had never been there, never even seen the building. I had no idea what to expect. Upon walking up to the Larkham, from the outside at least, it was less than impressive. You'd have no idea there was a theater there um, if you didn't already know it in advance. But all that changed the moment you walked through the doors. This place was incredible. The lobby and side rooms had all been restored. There was a huge room off the lobby. Actually, it was a hidden room, to be honest. And it looked like a, like a giant restaurant uh, back there. And then beyond those rooms were more rooms for dance rehearsals and so forth. Above it all were offices. Cesario's office in particular was up there. There was also an, an apartment there. Well, 
and I remember the walls being filled with awards that the company had won. We had a wonderful tour of the building, and then uh, Rick, who was leading the tour, he took me downstairs to the gallery, which was in the basement. This, for me, was one of the greatest single moments ever in my life as a magician, because here is where they stored the illusions and props they were no longer using in the show. And there were hundreds of ornately painted props and illusions, as well as original hand-painted canvases of the, these were the canvases, the originals of the, that would later become posters. The place was so beautiful. Everything was on display. It was displayed in the most amazing way. I recognized so many pieces. They had the coolest looking Noah's Ark illusion that likely has ever been built. They had a mismade lady illusion that was painted so intricately, you'd have to be afraid to use it because it was too gorgeous. There were show tables all painted with beautiful designs. One of my favorites was a seahorse show table. It was basically the, the legs of it looked like two seahorses. It was just gorgeous, unbelievable. And I, I want to say there were three rooms in the basement. There, there may have only been two, but for some reason I'm thinking there were three. At any rate, it was all awe-inspiring. One of my favorite pieces was a box illusion. Rick asked me to open it, which I did. And to my surprise, the inside was painted just as amazingly as the outside. And he pointed out that there was a small trap door inside the box. He, he said, open that. So I opened that. And this tiny little trap door that probably held silk handkerchiefs or something was also ornately painted on the inside. It was crazy. And Rick went on to explain that much of the real magic was in the details. And he'd learned this from Cesario. Cesario had learned this from David Bamberg. And he shared this with his entire company. In fact, a short time later, I was reading the book, uh, the book Illusion Show, which is the autobiography of David Bamberg. And David tells a story of building a prop and showing it to his father, Okido. His father was pleased with the way the outside was painted, but then when he opened the doors, he looked inside it wasn't painted. And Okito asked why. And David said, well, no one sees the inside. And with that, Okito handed the prop back to David and said, well, it's not finished then. And he went on to say, it's like wearing dirty underwear. No one may know you have on dirty underwear, but you know. And ever since then, David made sure the insides of his props were as gorgeous as the outside and this lesson carried on in the La Grande Vide world. Now, our, our tour was cut short, though, uh, because the show was getting ready to start and Rick had to get ready for his portion. I continued to look around the gallery for, for a little bit. My girlfriend joined me as well. She had this look in her eyes. I can't even describe it. And she just asked me, have you, have you met these people before? And I said, no, no. And she said, they are treating us like we're a long-lost family. I've never encountered so many kind people in all my life, and I honestly had to agree. We walked upstairs, and then uh, we were ushered into the theater to see the show. The Larkham Theater, by the way, it was brighter inside than the Cabot. The walls were brighter colors. In fact, the walls had 
pink flamingos painted on them. The seats, if I remember correctly, had all been reupholstered with a greenish-bluish patterned fabric. When the show started, keep in mind, I had not seen a La Grande Vide show since I was a kid, and now I was seeing a show that I'd never seen and seeing it as an adult. And almost from the very first second, things seemed to be a whirlwind of amazing illusions, presented in an energetic and upbeat fashion. Only a couple things in the Larkham show were the same as the Cabot. And even at that, they weren't the same routines, just the same props. For me, uh, my favorite part that afternoon was Cesario's 15 minutes of stand-up magic. He had this table specially made to hold a ton of magic. And I think, if I remember correctly, they told me it was like his emergency box. In case anything went wrong in the show, Cesario could do 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour right out of this box. And this particular day, I think he did 15 minutes. And he was doing the orange and rice uh, illusion, the, the or, an orange and rice, they trade places. And along with that, he had this very strange mechanical monkey that clapped a pair of symbols. That monkey and Cesario brought the house down. It was a hysterical routine, and I laughed until tears poured out of my eyes. They were, oh my God, they were so funny. Most of the show, though, um, was a blur. I do recall them doing Ricciardi's tip-over trunk with the decolta chair, but they did it in pure La Grande David style. That may have been the closer. Anyway, when the show was over, everyone left the theater except for me. I just sat there in stunned silence. I had never seen a show presented this way, and I'd never seen a more beautiful show. And this is honest truth. A cheer ran down my cheek as the emotion of it all just grabbed me. I just couldn't believe what I'd seen. It was so incredible. Did I mention I still had not said two words to Cesario? Well, that would change Saturday evening. We were sitting in the theater at the Cabot watching a movie, actually, when someone tapped me on the shoulder. It was David, and he said, Cesario's waiting in the lobby for me. And sure enough, there he was in the lobby, and we barely greeted each other before he was leading me on another tour. This time, Upstairs, uh, there were storefronts in front of the theater and the upstairs sections. Uh, this is where they did all their sewing. And I think they even did some painting up there as well. Anyway, he showed me these and then he sat down and we sat down. And uh, let me stop here real quick before I go further. Let me just ask you, have you ever had a car that was not quite tuned properly? You know, it would run, but it was kind of sluggish. Or, or maybe a computer that uh, eh, it worked well about 80% of the time, but then, you know, unexpectedly crashes or locks up at the worst times. Well, that was me. I mean, that's kind of how I was back then. I had some issues with things in life, and, and, um, and I don't think ever anybody knew it, but it was just, you know, kind of an internal thing. All that was about to change. I had a conversation with Cesario that was... It was like a mechanic giving a car a tune-up. It was nothing major, nothing earth-shattering, but it was just the right thing that I needed to hear at that moment, and it seemed to just be like a switch going off that changed. All, all these conflicts, everything, all the issues I had just vanished. Boom, gone. I still, I still think about that moment. 
how did he know what to say to me? Because I never gave him any clue as to uh, these things, but yet he just knew it. And I tell you, there was more magic in that conversation than in all the tricks we saw that weekend. It was incredible. I would have many conversations with Cesario afterwards, but looking back, not as many as I would like to have had. And never a conversation like the one we had that first time. All of the other conversations would be about magic. Uh, we seemed to think much alike when it came to magic. And where we didn't think alike, I would often take his opinion into consideration. And usually I, I agreed. <laughs> usually. For example, I, I wasn't sure how three escapes would work back to back in a big illusion show Yeah, in an escape show. Sure. But in an illusion show, I just, yeah, I didn't see it. And, um, I just kind of felt like they'd get lost or seemed that would seem out of place. One would be fine. Three. No. Then I saw the show at the Cabot and they did three escapes back to back in the most brilliant manner. And I definitely saw the light on that one. Speaking of the Cabot, the original show, it had a feel and a vibe all its own, and very different from that of the Larkham. The Cabot show seemed to have more spectacle, more pageantry, if you will, while the Larkham uh, seemed more vibrant. Uh, both shows were great, both very unique. The amount of illusions presented in the Cabot show was staggering. Man without a middle, shadow boxes, production boxes, splitting a lady in two, floating a lady in air, and just on and on it went. But my favorite part of the show this time was Cesario's floating table and his find the queen routine, which he called Lady Magic. His floating table had changed drastically since I saw it the first time. And this time brought the house down. Uh, in the show, Cesario was the only one that spoke with the exception of Webster Bull, who had that long monologue in the second half that I mentioned earlier. And David, wow. He was still, still doing breathtaking magic. His billiard ball routine was still in the show and still blew me away. His zombie ball routine was perfection. His multiplying bottles was the greatest I'd ever seen up until that time. When the show was over, Cesario asked me afterwards, is there anything, uh, anything we can do to make the show better? What kind of thoughts do you have uh, for us to improve the show? And my head was spinning. I, I couldn't think of a thing. But between you and I, there was one thing. And I never told him because I didn't feel it was my place. But, and I've never said this to anybody, but I didn't like the ending of the show. Uh, and specifically, I didn't like how each member of the cast came out to bow one after the other. It just was too long. Um, and it, it kind of created like a forced, sustained applause from the audience that was, it's not that they didn't deserve applause. It was just, it was just too much. If they had all come out together and bowed, and then maybe David and Cesario came out together for a separate bow, I think that would have been perfect. And I think they probably would have gotten a standing ovation at every show had they done that. But the other way was, it just seemed a bit too much. That's just my opinion. Um, like I said, not that they didn't deserve it. They certainly did deserve all the applause they got. Um, I think the other way would have been stronger, but then again, like I said, I never brought it up. What do I know? I certainly never built my own resident magic company from scratch the way they did. So I think I would, uh, defer to their, uh, 
brilliance, and they were clearly brilliant. Shortly after the show was over, uh, we were back on the train heading home, both of our heads spinning over the incredible weekend we just had. It would not be my last visit to Beverly. In fact, I went back numerous times. The next time was in the fall of that very same year. Uh, Then, at least once a year for several years, then there was a big stretch that I didn't go. And part of the reason was because my business had taken off in such a way that I didn't have time to go. And it took off because of Cesario's suggestions. So it was kind of his fault in a way that I wasn't able to return. But but return I did. And well, uh, I will save those stories for another time. Instead, let me give you a few more details on the show. David, uh, David Bull and Cesario were the two principal performers. But they also had... Avram and Rick as clowns. Rick was Albert Ping Pong. I forget Avram's clown name. They both had key roles throughout the performance. Mark Trombley had some key moments in the show. Uh, Johnny Lapa was the trumpet player, and he had his own trumpet solo uh, section in the show at the Cabot. I think he did at the Larkham, too. Um, there was no MC in this show. The routines flowed from one to the next. The transitions were as impressive as the routines themselves. There could be four, five, six, even a dozen people on stage at once, and yet no one was pulling focus from the featured effect. Every routine was done to music, with the exception of Cesario's floating table and his uh, Lady Magic Find the Queen routine. Their two shows were the most beautiful programs I've ever seen and likely will ever see. One of the greatest takeaways from my visits with them was this. I once asked, you have 800 seats or so here. What do you do if you don't sell out? I mean, what do you do if it's a like tiny audience? And the reply was something again. I, I needed to hear. Maybe every performer needs to hear it. Cesario said, we're happy to perform for whoever shows up. In other words, they give their all to whoever is in the audience. They don't get upset over the empty seats. They rejoice in the ones that are filled. And that, oh my gosh, what an important lesson that was. In case you're wondering, the Le Grand David show stopped production in 2012. Cesario Pelias died on March 24th, 2012. The cast finished out the season Two years later, the illusions, props, and costumes, curtains and all, were auctioned off. I own one of the beautiful backdrops, as well as some of the props and effects from the show. I own some of the books that they use to build the props, and uh, quite an assortment of things, actually. I'm still on the lookout for one of the illusions that uh, I would like to purchase from whoever got it. And then there is the matter of one of the curtains that slipped out of my hands, which I would like to get eventually. I think I know who has it, or I know someone who knows who has it. Well, that, my friends, is my first Le Grand David story on the anniversary of their very first show. I will speak more about them in the future as I have many stories to share. It's funny. This was called the first time I met Le Grand David, but in truth, it's really the first time I met Marco. Uh, Another time I'll have to share some David stories and fun stories about the other cast members. Until then, I hope you enjoyed this walk down memory lane. If you did enjoy the podcast, please remember to like, share, and subscribe, if you haven't already done so. 
Until next time, I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Be safe and be well.